Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Well, I won't say any more about who I am since I was introduced, but I will say if you'd like to know more about us or our ministry, you can go to truerelationships.org. So that's kind of nice being able to do that, that I don't have to say anything, and you can find out more if you'd like to. As I looked around this morning, I was surprised and happy to see some friends of ours in the audience, and that is previous staff members, church planters in some funny named city in Virginia. I don't remember what it was, but Josh and Ashley Bertram are here this morning. So what's the name of that city? Short Pump. Short Pump. Am Am I right or am I right? <clears throat> yeah, so um, I'm thrilled to be able to be here again this morning and to be able to speak in Pastor Gill's absence. <clears throat> um, it's always an honor for for any of us that get to do that. I, I, I'll tell you though up front, I'm a very different kind of teacher than Pastor Gill, so I'm not going to try to compare or be like him because I'm pretty much the opposite of him. Uh, he memorizes somehow, I don't know how he does that, but he doesn't use notes and has all of this up here. Okay, I must have a pea brain because I operate off of a manuscript. So I hope that you don't mind that I will be glancing down and then looking up, but that's the way I roll. You know, that's funny because I shouldn't be remembering stories to tell because I don't have a whole lot of time. But I remember when I was on staff at a church in Southern California, they had these gigantic uh, presentations at like Easter and Christmas. And I got pulled into being on the drama team and having to memorize all of my lines as one of the main characters, Peter. Yeah, I was Peter. That just seems to fit, doesn't it? And I was Peter, and I, I could not memorize the script. You know what I had to do? I had to get a tape player and put an earbud in my ear and turn it on and off so I could remember my lines. But so that, that's why I just go ahead and use a manuscript, all right? So thank you for accepting that and not comparing me in advance. Thank you for that. I, I think it's great. I love the idea of summer in the Psalms. Uh, I mean, we all love the Psalms, and I think it's great that we can have these different ones come in and bring an, uh, their understanding of a particular Psalm. And that's all I want to do this morning, is to bring to you some thoughts from Psalm 112. <clears throat> I've titled this talk this morning, What will be your legacy. Now, you see these lousy frames, the screen up here, they're, they're really done poorly. That's because I did them and I've been on vacation until Friday morning and it just did not happen until this morning. So I did the best I could. So you throw that up every once in a while, it'll look good, but we'll go back to those boring screens, the black and white. So uh, let, let's go ahead and begin with the verse, the verses from Psalm 112, and I'm just going to read all of it up front, okay? And before we do that, I, I just thought that 
I, I just wanted to pray for us this morning at the beginning instead of at the end. And uh, so if you would just bow your hearts with me, I'd like to just pray over our time. Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. Your, your word is truth and your truth is like honey from the honeycomb. Uh, uh, we, we love what you've given us in your word. And this morning, I pray that you would allow the, the uh, words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be pleasing to you. And, and what it is that you've, what I believe you've given me and what it is that I want to share, I pray that the people that are in this room will have ears to hear and that they will be able to extract at least one takeaway that can bring value to their lives, that can change the trajectory perhaps of their lives as they consider the legacy that they are offering to their descendants. May we embrace truth and drink deeply of it this morning. I pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. So let's read this. I'll read it out loud. You can follow along. Praise the Lord. Happy, happy is the person who honors the Lord, who takes pleasure in obeying his commands. The good man's children will be powerful in the land. His descendants will be blessed. His family will be wealthy and rich, and he will be prosperous forever. Wow. Light shines in the darkness for good people, for those who are merciful, kind, and just. Happy is the person who is generous with his loans, who runs his business honestly. A good person will never fail. He will always be remembered. He is not afraid of receiving bad news. His faith is strong and he trusts in the Lord. He is not worried or afraid. He is certain to see his enemies defeated. He gives generously to the needy and his kindness never fails. He will be powerful and respected. The wicked see this and they are angry. <laughs> I kind of like that for some reason, I don't know. They glare in hate and disappear. Their hopes are gone forever. There's a lot of, uh, I don't know, I would kind of call them hyperboles. I mean, there's a lot of forevers and a lot of nevers and a lot of always. And, and I think we all know that life doesn't typically offer us those kind of uh, exact ideas where it's always never. We even teach each other, don't say never and don't say always, especially when you're correcting someone because that is contemptuous. You think you're better. Well, the psalmist here is better, and he is hearing from God. So I don't know what that means for you or me this morning. I've never experienced always wealthy. <laughs> Would all of you kind of go with me on that? But I do believe there's something in this psalm that we need to figure out. We need to understand. And that is that it's not about us. 
This statement, this psalm is not meant to be focusing on us, on me. As I read that, it's not about me. It's about others. It's about my family. It's about the children that come after us. The psalmist uses two words here that most Christians, I think at least, most Christians are uncomfortable with applying to themselves. Those two words are found in the first two verses. And those two words are happy and good. Happiness is often dismissed as... uh, kind of unspiritual because it is an emotion based on circumstances and is often fleeting. So we downplay happy. We consider it, and you know, no wonder so many of us are emotionally unhealthy. You know, we're not even allowed to be happy because it's going to go away, so just be prepared um, we, we've been, I think some of us have been taught at some level that happiness is somehow ungodly. I mean, where's the good news in that? Isn't that what we've been given as good news? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to think it's not good to be happy or that it won't last very long or that we can't tell others to be happy. Again, a hyperbole. I'm not saying that we would never say you can't be happy, but I think we often downplay the idea of happiness as being something that's just kind of uh, human and it's really not very godly or spiritual. Well, I'd like to correct that this morning if I can. Uh, Another unfortunate conclusion that we often make is that being good is somewhat optional. Optional meaning that it's not expected. I mean, after all, we're fallen creatures. We're human. We can't be good. And we, we often take those teachings, those ideas from Scripture because Jesus said no one is good except God. Well, listen, folks, all I can tell you is It's all about context. (laughs) When you read God's word, make sure you're getting the context of what it is that this passage or this chapter or this book is about. And so what the psalmist is saying is accurate, that it's good to be good. And so don't downplay being good to your children. Don't downplay being good to your spouse, your family. It's good to be good. The use of the word good in the context of this passage and in the context of what Jesus was saying about no one being good is really an answer to the question, how can I be good enough to get into heaven? Okay, well, that's a completely different story. I will never be good enough to get into heaven. 
But that sure doesn't mean that it's okay to just always be not good because, well, that's not possible to be good. Yes, it is. And it is a good thing. So it doesn't exclude anyone from being a good person simply for the sake of making life better for others. That's the beauty of it, is making life better for others. So being good is a good thing. But as I said, goodness won't get you into heaven. But here's what goodness and happiness will produce. An undeniable legacy of spiritual, emotional, and social values, winning attitudes, money, and what money can't buy, passed down to your children and your children's children. Now, that to me is pretty profound. That actually the psalmist is saying that happiness and goodness are the beginnings of a legacy that will transform your family and your descendants down the line. There is a dark side to this lesson, and that is that it is possible to pass on a legacy of sin, addiction, um, and false beliefs. It's possible to pass that legacy on. And God help us to make sure that we are passing down a legacy that is full of grace and truth and happiness and all these good things. So that's, that's gonna take some work. I would imagine that any legacy worth passing on is gonna take discipline. It's gonna take work. It's gonna take intentionality. So I'm hoping that today I can inspire all of us to be more intentional about the legacy that we are in fact, whether you know it or not, you are offering to your descendants. C.H. Spurgeon, maybe this will be a good deterrent for us. C.H. Spurgeon said, sin would have fewer takers if its consequences occurred more immediately. <laughs> I wonder if we could see how our sin will affect our descendants if it would make a difference. I think it would. And I guess that's really the only reason I wanted to use that quote because oftentimes we don't see it until unfortunately it's too late. I don't want it to be too late for any of us. I wonder how America's sins of adultery and divorce and abortion and addiction will affect future generations. Well, I think we probably have a good idea because we've already been the recipients of that that's been passed down as a legacy from previous generations. So again, it's up to us. What are we going to do with that truth? Are we just going to sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be? Or will we be purposeful and intentional about setting 
an agenda, a, a, a legacy that will last and will be good and happy for those that follow us. I, I love this uh, study that was done back in the early 1900s. Actually, I believe it was in 1900 that uh, A.E. Winship, okay, I, I really don't know who this guy is, but he was a researcher and a, a professor somewhere, but he did a study on two known patriarchs in his particular state. The two patriarchs that he chose to study their lives, long-term study. So this wasn't done in a week or two or a month or two. This was done over the years of their family line. So he did a study on two patriarchs. One was Jonathan Edwards. How many of you have heard of or know who Jonathan Edwards is? Let me see your hands. All right, for everybody else, please Google that name this afternoon and find out who Jonathan Edwards is. It'll be worth your investment of time. The other person that this gentleman studied was a guy by the name of Max Jukes, J-U-K-E-S. Now, Jukes was a lazy Dutch criminal that lived in the same state as Jonathan Edwards, but he did not believe in Christ and he did not believe in Christian training. He refused to take his children to church even when his children asked him to. Mr. Winship described Jukes at the time of that writing as having had 1,026 descendants. 300 of that 1,026 were sent to prison for an average term of 13 years, seven of which were murderers. 190 were public prostitutes. 680 were admitted alcoholics. His family thus far had cost the state in excess of $420,000. That was in 1900. They made no contribution whatsoever to society. His entire family line, starting with Max. Now, on the other hand, Mr. Winship discovered that the effects of the Edwards' lives have been far-reaching, but the most measurable results of their faithfulness to God's call are found not in them, but in their or through their descendants. His family never cost the state one cent, but had contributed immeasurably to life in America. Here are just a few of the accomplishments of the 1,400 Edwards descendants he was able to find. 430 were ministers. 100 of them were lawyers, and one was actually the dean of a law school. 80 were holders of public office. 66 were physicians, and one was a dean of a medical school. 65 were professors of colleges and universities, 30 judges, 
13 college presidents, three mayors of large cities, three governors of states, three United States senators, one controller of the United States Treasury, and one vice president of the United States. Whew. Talk about a contrast in legacy. That is the best picture I could paint for you of the incredible value in what we do with two and four our children. Many Bible teachers see Psalm 112 as being focused on the person that fears the Lord and how blessed they are. Now, it's not that that isn't there, but I do not believe that that is the focus of Psalm 112. I see a different focus. Verses two and three direct the attention of the reader to the family and the children. So really at the beginning of this Psalm, it's yes, this individual is blessed, so is Jonathan Edwards. But that wasn't the point. The point was that through him, he was able to bless a, 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 a whole family line. How does that happen? Well, what is it that he did that affected generations of people? What is it that he and his wife did that so affected his children that they passed it on to theirs and so on and so forth? I hear this psalm teaching us the values that embody a godly family legacy. The writer assumes his listeners know how to apply these values in establishing their family legacy. So you hear what I just said? The writer, I, the, the, the psalmist is really taking for granted that he did not have to define or explain these particular uh, values that he was hinting at. So, I would like to take the opportunity to share with you what I find as five very intentional, very specific legacies that the blessed person should be passing on. The first one, let's go to that ugly screen, is the legacy of creating wealth. Included in this legacy is the truth that God gives us the power to create wealth. And ultimately, God is our provider. Now, this legacy passed down to me personally in my family, the legacy that I received was giving, gave me a strong sense of God's provision and walking by faith. Unfortunately, it did not include the skills involved in creating wealth. My dad retired from General Motors. Everything was done for him. His investments, his retirement, everything was automatic. 
So they did not understand the need or the possibility that things would change, and it did change. And I was entrepreneurial, and I started organizations, and I did not know how. I didn't know how. I didn't have the skills to create wealth. Now, that doesn't mean I, I'm poor. It doesn't mean that I don't have things. But I, I, I did not know how to invest. I didn't ever have a savings account. Yeah, seriously. That, that was never, if I could have started saving when I was a little kid and really knew how to do that, I could have been a millionaire. It's true. The numbers prove that, but I didn't know that. Nobody ever told me that. They never even taught me that in Bible college because it was probably not right. You weren't allowed to have money if you were in the ministry. No, oh, I'm, I'm serious. I remember the first time when Linda and I planted a church, one of the people, authorities over me, told me I wasn't allowed to make what I had created by going out and having people, uh, um, uh, what's the word, uh, um, support us in planting a church. This guy said, I have pastors in this state that don't make what you're making and you're a young kid. Have them go out and get some money. I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, it, it was, that was the message that I got over and over again. And as I look back, it kind of makes me mad because I could have been given a legacy of knowing how to do that. Not because my goal was to be a millionaire or even to be rich, but I needed to know how to handle that, and I didn't learn it. And unfortunately, that left me incapable, unprepared early on, and then incapable of forming these skills in my legacy for my children. My son must have figured that out and said, I am not going to live like that. And he is a very successful financial planner. And he lives in Southern California, Costa Mesa, near the beach, has a pool in his backyard and is driving a Tesla. Hello! I've got a 1984 Honda. No, again, I'm not, I, I don't, I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm making a big deal about the money. I, I'm just, I'm just exaggerating a little bit to make a point that this is, it didn't have to be the way that it is, okay, for me. I, it could have been different if someone, uh, uh, particularly my family, could have let me know how to do this. I didn't. So that wasn't a, a part of my leg. Now, faith and trusting God and the stories that I heard from my parents, especially my mom, about God's provision, and we've experienced the same, Linda and I, God's miraculous provision. But that, that's really separate from the kind of talk that the psalmist is doing here about wealth. I didn't know how to do that. So if you can begin that now, start it with your children, for your children, and teach them how 
to create wealth, not so that they will be independent of God, but that they will see God's miraculous truth in being able to do something that they couldn't have done otherwise. Okay, you follow me? You with me? Okay. Legacy number two, excuse me, is the legacy of discernment. That I've drawn from verse four. Discernment is a profound skill to provide in your children's arsenal for life. Discernment is like street smarts. Sometimes it even functions in the fashion of common sense. And I think you probably have heard this quote from Mark Twain that said, it's an amazing thing how uncommon common sense is. It's because it's not being passed down. We're not becoming wise and interested and aware and curious, which provides a a concept of, of discernment. Discernment is so necessary for, to the body of Christ that it is actually one of the gifts of the Spirit given freely to some. Now, some believe that all of those gifts are available to every believer. I'm good with that. I don't have a problem with that. But my experience has been that there are gifts given to each of us and that some of us have the gift of discernment and yet some of you have it and you're not even using it and it was free. I'm calling on the rest of you that may not have that gift to figure out what it looks like, what it means, how you operate in discernment. I want you to be aware. You know what? Sometimes discernment comes simply from being curious and asking questions. It's not some, you know, ethereal thing. It's just using those skills that God gives us, whether that be including logic or curiosity or information or awareness, all of those things combined actually end up giving us a measure of discernment. It's like, yeah, I know what that is. I've seen that before. No, you cannot do that because I know where that leads. No, sorry. What's done is, we're done. Now, I might not say it that harshly, but you understand, I think, what I'm trying to say. And that is, when you know, you know. Many times we as parents, we're not even sure. Or we think, well, I did that when I was younger. Well, where did that get you? Don't let them do the same thing. That's no legacy to pass on. So, although it may be a gift for some, It is a spiritual skill that can be learned and can be taught. So you have to learn it so that you can teach it to your children and they can pass it on to theirs. That's how it works. Number three, the third legacy is the legacy of honesty and generosity. The, the characters of um, the old bah humbug, Mr. Scrooge, and um, Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life, uh, 
they portray the antithesis of this legacy. I see this part of our legacy as the fruit of humility. Okay, don't miss that. This legacy comes from and is the result of humility. Wealth and influence can lead to pride. Lack of wealth and power can result in bitterness and greed. We must teach our children what it looks like to have true humility. Wealthy or poor, we can leave a legacy of honesty and generosity. Consider the widow's might that so impressed Jesus. She was clearly not wealthy. She was alone and she was older, and yet she gave out of what we would think is her lack, but she had a spirit of generosity. She gave what many of us would think we don't have to give, but she understood something about generosity that many times we miss. I mean, we could also go to the other end of that, consider the sins of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament in the early church. Their dishonesty and greed became their legacy of warning to every generation that has followed. I mean, most people that don't even read the Bible know who Ananias and Sapphira are. And they probably look at it and think, well, I don't want to serve that God. No, the point is, we have to be generous and honest. And when we aren't, we are on the edge. We're in trouble. So that's the point. Has God done that a bunch of other times? No, that was the only time. He hoped that he only had to give that message once. Let's get that message. Generosity and honesty go a long way with God and with our family. The fourth legacy, the legacy of courage. The psalmist describes the person creating this legacy in Psalm 112 as having a a winning mentality. Excuse me. Uh, This person, as we are to be, is fearless and full of faith. Let me say it again. Fearless and full of faith. They are confident because their trust is not in themselves or their horse or their weapons or their armor, but it is in the Lord. That's where our trust must be. And if our trust is there, we can be courageous. That trust assures that their enemies will be defeated. The legacy of courage begins by naming who and what our enemies are. Okay, the legacy of courage begins by naming the enemies that are before us. Today, they are not the Hittites and the Jebusites. Those were the enemies in the Old Testament. 
Today, we must stand courageously against enemies like drugs and pornography. Pornography, it is an enemy. It is not a friend. It is not something that's supposed to make you feel good. It will attack you. You will become addicted to it, and it will destroy you and your legacy. I promise you that's true. I've watched it too many dang times. We have to stand against these enemies that we've become so lackadaisical about these things that are destroying us. We can't stand by. Name that or other enemies and be courageous. Courageously defend freedom, especially the freedom to live out our faith. Make a stand for truth and righteousness. I had the privilege of going to the air show, the Dayton air show yesterday with my son-in-law and my grandson. When the Thunderbirds came out, I was right there on the front where I watched all of the pomp and circumstance that went into them readying themselves to get in the planes and all the checks and everything they had to do. And you know what they said? That that, what I watched, yeah, was a legacy. It had been passed down since 1953. The stuff they did with those planes were the same things that they had learned years and years before, decades before, that was passed out, and it it still worked and has made the military, in particular yesterday, the Air Force, to be the greatest Air Force in the world. Their discipline, their commitment, their way of doing it was passed down. It was respected that what they figured out is what we've got to do because it works. That's a legacy. Prove that what you believe, what you do, what you think works. And if it doesn't work, stop doing it. (laughs) You don't want to pass it down. So let's figure it out, I guess is the point. The fifth and final legacy that I believe is communicated to us here today is the legacy of kindness. Rome wasn't built in a day, and neither are legacies, okay? This isn't gonna happen overnight. Kindness is one aspect of your legacy that you can change or begin to build today, okay? It's not gonna be fulfilled today, but if Kindness is not a part of the legacy that you are passing down. Change that today. Couples that come to me for counseling, they're often so chaotic. They are so angry. They are yelling, screaming, expletives at each other every day. And although I want to give them lots of tools, one of the things I often send them away, especially after their first time, is, you know what? Just Just try being kind to each other. Just be kind. Okay, we're not going to figure this all out overnight. It might take us a little bit of a process, but just start being kind and and let's leave the work for here. 
Just be kind. You have... You wouldn't believe how many times people come back the next time and they say, wow, it's been a great two weeks. Oh, so you must have been kind for two weeks. Yep, okay, it works. All right, kindness is a legacy. It can change. I think the Edwards family had that figured out. Somehow they they understood relationship. They were in service-oriented jobs and careers that were affecting people beyond their family. You may be failing in this up to this point, but you can choose kindness starting now. Now, I'm not talking about random acts of kindness. Okay, that was kind of a a, a fad, and it's not like a bad one, but we don't need random acts of kindness that we do for a day or a week. We need, and I'm calling us to perpetual acts of kindness. Every day, the rest of your life, instead of getting angry, share your feelings softly. (laughs) I know some of you are like, what planet is this dude from? But I am, I am so serious. Just l- learn how to do it. I didn't know how to do it when we got married. I did not know how to do that. I was more into being right than being soft. And it cost us. Okay, so yeah, you can change. People will tell you that you can't. You might even believe your spouse can't change. People don't change. Yes, they do. <laughs> they change. They have to be intentional. They have to work at it. But yes, they can change. So let's change this, all right? Um, Consider others before yourself. Refuse to use expletives and harsh language when speaking to others, not particularly, but especially your spouse and your children. I, I just met with a guy this week. And... He, he was angry. He was angry with his kid, teenager. Caught him drinking, being up in the middle of the night, letting people into their house while they're asleep. And he was angry. And in no uncertain terms, he let that kid know it. And he used expletives, including the F word. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. This kid's a teenager and you're using that word against him and you think that's going to change him? That is not going to change him. That's going to make him rebel. That's going to make him pull away from you. You want to move in to that kid's world. You got to find out what's going on in this life of his that would make him do what he's doing. And being angry is not going to get there. Kindness, I told him. Kindness. We'll do that. Really, I'm supposed to be kind to this kid? That did? Yes. Not ignore what he did, but be kind enough to say, hey, you know what? This, I, what, what I did is I helped him find out what he really felt instead of anger. You know what he felt? He felt betrayed. He felt disappointed. I was like, oh, yes. Now communicate that to him. 
Let him know what you felt when you walked into his room and you saw that half-empty bottle of vodka. Let him know how that scared you. As a dad, that scared you. That he'll respond to. But calling him out and calling him names, that is not going to work. It's not going to work, folks. So I'm just trying to help you out here. Because unfortunately, I talk with so many people and I know that they use those kind of words to each other. It's like, uh, that is not kind. (laughs) So I got to end here. Just be kind. You know, like open that door for the person that's coming behind you. Create rituals of kindness in your home, like greeting one another joyfully when they return to the house. Kindness can transform your family. No wonder kindness makes the list as a legacy legend. Kindness works. Whether you know it or not, you are creating a legacy. Starting today, you can become intentional. Maybe you only understood legacy as inheritance. You have planned for your family financially. You have created a college fund for your kids or have even set them up to take over your business. That's great. Now you can begin adding some of these biblical values into your family legacy. Think about it. Talk about it. Pray about it. How will your descendants remember you? How will your descendants remember you? Consider that while all of us remember the legacy of love and forgiveness provided by Jesus Christ. We're going to engage in communion, and Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. What are we supposed to remember? We're supposed to remember the legacy, what he did for us. So let's. Remember him today and let that inspire us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.